I want to, as I'm sharing tonight, I want to press in together. And here's why. You know, when we communicate and we speak truths that are in the gospel, it's not just about the humans that are in this room. You know, part of one of the things that the church is intended to do is to make known the manifold wisdom of God, the principalities and powers. And so we don't speak directly to demons. I don't anyways. But what I do is I declare the beauty, the truth, the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, and it disarms them. Because that truth is penetrating the heavenlies. And so our war is not carnal. It's not against one another. Right? It's against this spiritual realm that exists. So as we together, I'm going to be proclaiming truths. And, and, uh, and I want to contend together that these truths begin to take root in the body of Christ in Jacksonville. This confidence. How many of you know there will be a victorious church before Jesus returns? We'll be vibrant filled with love and light, I think will be sinless. I think there'll be no entry point where the enemy can get in and distort and distract. We'll be filled with the power of the Spirit. I mean, that's where this is headed. It will be glorious. But there is some resistance and there's a battle coming to enter into that. There's a battle that's already here and we're waking up. So let's just enter in together. And I just want to ask you as I'm sharing, just contend with me. Anything that resonates in your spirit, just intercede, even as we're, this is a form of intercession as well. We're just, we're fellowshipping over the word of God and over the truth. So Father, Lord, anoint my heart. Father, anoint my mind. Anoint our hearts. Anoint our minds, Lord, to receive the truth. Jesus, that you would be magnified and exalted. I thank you for your mind. I thank you, Jesus, for your heart, for your love. Lord, I thank you for the lives of the apostles and the saints before us, even the cloud of witnesses that right now are listening. We believe it. Lord, we're part of an anthemic, a cinematic reality in heaven and earth where all of heaven is longing for the manifestation, the fullness of your kingdom to invade the earth. Lord, we resonate. Creation itself is groaning. Lord, the sea out there, the dolphins, they know it. They're waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Lord, this earth would be brought out of its decay. Lord, we'd be brought into a place of freedom and victory forever and ever and ever and ever. So we just declare in the heavenlies that there will be victory for the saints forever and ever and ever. Every tear will be wiped away. There's a moment where there'll be no more sorrow ever again. So Lord, we step into that place through faith and we say thank you. And Lord, we want to see it. All right, so we're doing a series this summer on the Holy Spirit, where each one of us are going to take different concepts. Um, we're still kind of figuring that out. I know Teresa's going to do the oil of the Holy Spirit. Carlos is still, did you determine yet, Carlos? You're still praying, thinking? He's still, he's still doing his thing. We're trying to tell him to do fire, but, you know, let him make his own decision. So, <clears throat> so mine, what I chose to do is born of spirit. And so what I'm going to be going over a little bit tonight, it's going to be two parts. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about the normal Christian birth. And especially as we go into doing evangelism at the end of the month, I want to rehash and refresh the basic things of the Christian faith. Because I found that oftentimes, at least in the young adults and the different worlds I'm in, there's a lack of understanding of some of the fundamental doctrines of the gospel. Almost so that if someone were to go to one and say, hey, how do I get born again? They wouldn't know what to say. They might say, come to my church or go see this pastor or... You just got to know God loves you. And there's, there's actual um, process that we need to have clarity in. We need to have authority in. We need to have experience in. 
in order to preach the gospel effectively, because I believe there is a billion soul harvest that will come in before Jesus returns. And so it doesn't, you know, sometimes we're waiting for God to wave a magic wand and to go, and it comes in. I think he's waiting for us to reclaim these truths, reclaim this momentum that once existed in the church, begin to take risks, move in faith, and begin to see this happen. I believe now is the time, we're the generation, to begin to see this momentum happen in the nations of the earth. And it's stirring. It really is stirring. And part of what we do is pray and contend, and that's real. In the spirit room, I, to, I just want to say, that's real. How many of you saw the story this week about Dollar General Store and the guy that tried to steal that woman's child? Anybody see that? There's a, a woman's in a Dollar General store with a 12 or 13-year-old daughter. This 30-year-old man comes up. He's talking to the woman. He tries grabbing her daughter and stealing her from a broad daylight Dollar General public space. And you can see on the camera the woman's fighting the man, pulling her daughter from this man. And we kind of know that that's the reason why people are kidnapping girls, especially that age, is for the sex trade. They're taking them as young as two, three years old. And so... This man goes to do that. It gets, she pulls, wrestles the girl away from him. As he's walking out the store, guess what? An off-duty police officer is walking in. He's arrested and charged. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's not a coincidence. We are warring in the heavenlies that this stuff happens. And I believe we're going to see it more and more. So I just want to inspire us that just praying and contending is powerful. It's part of what we're called to do. Another story, who saw this story about the man in Chicago that owned the Chuck E. Cheese? There was a man in Chicago that owned a Chuck E. Cheese, and they found in the basement he was having satanic rituals. And they found the remains of 13-year-old boys that had been missing in the basement of the Chuck E. Cheese. And he's actually kidnapping children and sacrificing them in ritualistic fashion right in the basement of a Chuck E. Cheese in Chicago. And so, you know what? There's other houses of prayer in this city that are releasing stuff from the dark side that are real, but they're being exposed. And as we contend in the heavenlies and we're announcing who we are, we're stepping into a place of authority and we're saying, we're saying, okay, we will pay a price. We will push through resistance. We're not going to shrink back into a life of comfort and numbness and powerlessness. We're going to begin to contend. We're going to see these things exposed more and more and more. I believe it. And we're going to shout with victory every time, but it's not just contending. We have to do the great commission. We have to preach and proclaim the gospel with boldness. And so what we have up front here, it says, Contending for the original faith, as we move forward into the coming conflict and harvest, we must contend earnestly for the quality and character of faith that was originally handed down by the apostles. So in Jude, it says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend earnestly. Same translation say vigorously. For the faith entrusted once for all to the saints. So even by the time Jude's reading this letter, there's distortions, there's deceptions, there's false teachers, there's false sentiments that have crept in to the apostolic community that are beginning to steal the purity of the faith that was once given by the apostles. So he's exhorting them, contend, take this serious, it's real. So I like to use the term apostolic Christianity. You could could put it apostolic, you could say biblical. I like the term apostolic. And all that means is it's the form of Christianity that the apostles preached, that they practiced, and that they lived. It is important that we contend for this biblical version of Christianity in these three areas. Okay, so the first one is apostolic doctrine. 
Paul said to Timothy, the young apostle, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself. Well, I thought Timothy was already saved. And your hearers. There's a sobriety that Paul's saying to Timothy. He's saying, listen, young man, it really matters what your doctrine is. It really matters. Perseveres. Don't shrink back from the truth. There's going to come conflict. There's going to come accusation. There's going to come different ideas that you're going to have to contend against. He's saying to the young apostle, persevere. It matters not only for your salvation, but for your hearers as well. So it's apostolic doctrine. We want to persevere in apostolic power. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of, come on, power. I love this verse in Acts. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what, he, to what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed. This isn't inner healing or legs growing out. I'm grateful for inner healing and legs growing out. But that's not mostly what we see when the apostles preached and declared the kingdom. It was physical, tangible healings. Paralyzed people were getting healed. And so it says, um, paralyzed and lame were healed, so there was much rejoicing in that city. Can you imagine the whole city is filled with joy because paralytics are getting healed? Demons are coming out with a shriek. But here's what is most powerful to me about that right there, is that Philip wasn't even an apostle. It says earlier in Acts that Philip was one of the ones that was chosen to serve tables. He wasn't, he wasn't the man in the early Christian church. He was a normal believer like you and I, preaching the gospel, moving in power. It, that was normal Christianity. That was apostolic Christianity. How many of you believe the Holy Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever, oblivion? You know, we believe that. Do we believe the Holy Spirit's the same? The same Holy Spirit that rested on them rests on us. So my thing is, why are we okay with that not happening? Why are we okay with a form of preaching the gospel where we don't see this happening? Why don't we want to groan? Why don't we want to ache? You know, it's like the apostles preached and cities went into riot. I don't see anybody preaching in America that's causing anyone to riot except for Donald Trump. And I'm not saying he's an apostle, but I'm saying that's what it's going to look like one day. But I'll tell you this about Donald Trump. He's not afraid to confront and say things that are offensive. And I'll tell you, these apostles, and when we begin to preach the apostolic gospel, there will be an offense. There's a confrontation with hell that's lodged in the hearts of human beings. And he has got us to shrink back from the apostolic gospel of repentance, from dead works, from sin, from wickedness. He's caused us to soft sell it. And we think we're gaining favor in the hearts of men, but we're really appeasing demons. We're really keeping them content. I'm telling you, when we begin to reclaim and preach this gospel, we will see riots. We will see persecution, demonstrations of violence against believers. I believe it with all my heart. And that's part of why we don't really preach it, because there's, there's a part of us that can feel that. They can feel that we don't want conflict. We don't want, to, we don't want to pull the pin on the grenade and let it blow up in our environments because we want to keep the peace. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about the need for repentance. We just want to tell people Jesus loves them. Let me tell you something. Paul didn't start riots by telling people Jesus loved them. He didn't start riots because he healed people. He didn't start riots because he had prophetic words. He started riots because there was a clear call for men to shift and change. Not only that, 
there was a clear call that there's another kingdom coming into the planet that's going to supersede these government systems. At the end of the day, that's why those guys <laughs> were hated. Because the power structures that were at work were trembling under the weight of the apostolic gospel. And the men didn't fear their life. I can promise you, we're not moving into apostolic power till we get over our fear of death. Our fear of rejection. Our fear of losing our honor. Our fear of not, people not liking us. All these strongholds, the enemy's got us so bound, so afraid to tell people the truth. But yet we think we're so loving because we soft sell them. Let me tell you something. Loving is to tell the truth. Uh, John Finch, was, my buddy, was watching a documentary on atheists yesterday. And he said that they interviewed these atheists in college campus. And one said, you know, my main thing with Christianity is if people really believe this, why has nobody told me? If you literally believe that my soul is, will be damned to hell or that I'm in a life of torment, or that sin is going to destroy my life, you literally believe that, then why don't you have the courage to tell me to my face that I have to repent? No one's even mentioned anything to him. I'm telling you, we're moving into a day and an era we are going to begin to preach the gospel again. So it's the apostolic power, but it's not just that. It's the apostolic community. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a reality of apostolic Christian community that's emerging that's void of the forms and the formalities that keep distance. Like the concept of having community but there being a distance, he's removing that because when the power breaks out and the joy and the glory and we're experiencing that together, the natural overflow is a life of community and communion that's mainly happening in each other's homes. We're not saying, hey, let's go to the building and do the religious stuff, the spiritual stuff. Let me retreat back to my home and live in isolation so you don't see my real issues. Because there's a real breakthrough that's happening in our hearts. We're actually free. I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel. We're not hiding the fact that we got real issues. We've been set free and we're bringing people in close. And there's this love and this mutuality that begins to be an overflow. And you can't contain it. You can't control it. You, it's like the ocean. You can't put it in a cup. It's a life-giving organism that breaks the boundaries of control that have been put on. I'll be honest with you. That's what Constantine did in Rome. He saw this movement, this grassroots movement that had all this momentum. There's power breaking out. There's love. There's mutuality. You can't control organic, organically, relationally driven movements with distance, intimidation, and fear, especially if you're dealing with people who aren't afraid to die. You've kind of lost your only pool, especially if you're dealing with people who they're already selling their things and giving it to one another, like the money. You can't come in there and buy them. I mean, people tried that. Remember the, the Simon the sorcerer thought he was going to buy the Holy Spirit, and Peter's like, whoa. what do you? I mean, we live in a day and age where if you got money, you can have power in the church, but not necessarily in the kingdom. I mean, I'm, and the Lord told me that today. He goes, you can tell the reality of, as I was driving, he said, son, you can tell the reality of um, power and authority in an environment and by how much money can purchase honor. Because money couldn't purchase honor in the early church. It couldn't purchase power. It couldn't purchase control. We're going to get liberated from all that. So... Just 70 years after Jesus' ascension, it was clear that the various distortions had entered the believing community. Some had even pretended to be apostles, but were not. So John's on the island of Patmos. He gets the seven letters of the churches. In Revelation 2, Jesus says, 
These are the words that of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks among the lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Ooh, wait a second, Jesus. You called somebody wicked? (laughs) Then you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. One translation says you have exposed apostolic pretenders. People who are claiming to have this apostolic authority, but the fruit isn't really there. And he says, you've tested them. He said, you've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, this is the believing community Jesus is calling to repent. This isn't unbelievers. These are believers that Jesus is calling to repent. He says, repent. Do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. This is Jesus. We don't have a gospel today where, a, where our Jesus says this kind of things to the believing community, saying, repent, or I'll come and remove your lampstand. I don't really know what that means, but I know it's not good. <laughs> I don't want to be on the other side of it and go, oh, that's what you meant. My lampstand's now gone. <laughs> you know, I want to be on this side of it and tremble a little bit and like, not sure what that means, but I'm thinking lampstand's good. I want it. So I don't know what it could mean. Anointing, our grace, our ability to be a light. I mean, there's different, different interpreters say different things. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. He's like, I hate it too. (laughs) I love that. And not because I like the word hate, but because I like that there's grit in Jesus. I like that there's, he, he makes choices. He's serious. He's sober. He's okay with saying, I hate that teaching. And what was happening was the Nicolaitans were a sect that had, that had kind of mixed paganism and the, the, the worship of the, the, the Greeks already had in their culture in with Christianity. And they were kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this is okay. And they were slowly seducing the saints to live in sexual immorality, drunkenness, carousing. And they were endorsing it and saying it was actually godly. So I, I think that a lot of these leaders were the apostles that the early church was exposing as false. And I want to tell you, we're living in a day... I, in this city right now, there's men and women that are calling themselves apostles in this city right now. I'm not saying they're false. I'm not saying they're true. I don't know. It's not my place to evaluate that. But I can say this. I know that there's apostolic pretenders. I know that there's these doctrines that are slipping in. And it's not even like I'm not blaming any person. I can see it in the conversations I have with mainly some young adults and realize, man, where did you get your perspective of Christianity? Certainly not from the Bible. Certainly not from the apostolic teaching. And so Jesus says this to them. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. I believe that in a similar vein, the Holy Spirit is calling the church back to the origins of the faith and realigning us with the basic commission to all believers to preach the gospel and make disciples. And that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think it's just, he says, you've forgotten your first love. Mainly mainly we interpret that as a way of saying we need to have intimacy with Jesus again. And yes and amen. That's where it all starts. That's numero uno. But I think it's more than that. Jesus is saying, don't just go back and feel good feelings. Go back and do deeds, works. Go back and do those works you did at first. When you first got touched with the power of God. When you first came into the kingdom, you're sharing your testimony. You're praying for people. You're excited about people coming to faith. You're discipling people. You're putting it all out on the line. And somehow we get convinced that there's not a requirement of labor in the gospel. And we shrink back and do a life of comfort and ease and use scriptures to justify it. And that's what was beginning to happen to this early church. And Jesus is going, stop, repent. 
or I'm going to take away your lampstand, meaning I'm going to take away the signal. I'm going to take away your authority because I can't keep having you be a sign, a beacon for me. Because if people come to you, you're going to teach them a wrong gospel. They're going to come into this complacent, lazy, apathetic version of Christianity with no power, no bite. And, I'm, and I can't have that. So he will remove lampstands. Not because he doesn't like the leaders or the people, but because he cares for the people that are drawn to that lighthouse. It'd be like if we had a lighthouse and there's ships on the sea with no food, no resources, and we, we have this lighthouse, but we don't have any real food or, medic, or medicine. And, there's, and the Lord's going, listen, I can't keep sending ships to you because I really care about those people, and they're coming to you, but you're bankrupt. You don't have the goods anymore. So I'm going to take that lamp away and go put it over here where people will actually contend for something in the Spirit and be able to provide resource to people that are in desperate need of it. So in this letter to the Hebrews, the Apostle Paul identifies with the basic components of the Christian faith. And I love this. Here's Paul writing to the Hebrews, and he's saying, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Again, here's the foundations. Here's the things at first. Of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about baptisms, plural, and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Paul's saying these are the basic tenets of apostolic Christianity. And what he's indicting the Hebrews, he's saying we should be moving on to more, but we need to come back to this. And basically, I didn't put the next verses in there, but that's that verse about anyone who's tasted of the heavenly gift, tasted of the powers of the age to come, and they choose to go on and live in sinfulness. These are born-again people. It is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. That's a tough scripture. But it's in context to this. And he's saying, I can tell by the way people are acting in your environment. They don't know this. They don't know about eternal judgment. That didn't really take, that didn't really hit home. Eternal judgment word didn't really hit home. Because if it did, they wouldn't be living the way they're living. He's like, I got to go back and relay these foundations. Like the repentance thing didn't really hit home. They think it's just feeling sorry for their sin. They actually have to change. They actually have to cry out for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. They actually have to be baptized. And so what we have to do is we have to reclaim. My fear is in charismatic Christianity, we've gone on so many tangents. And we're masters in, so, in the anointing, in the glory, the fire, whatever terms we use. But we're not doing the basic things of the faith. And it's crippling us. And there's a world out there that is desperately needing to come into a father that will deliver them, heal them, restore them, love them. And there's a responsibility and a burden in us as the covenant community to do all these things that Paul lays out here. We need to be well-versed in this. I want to charge this community. You need to understand what does repentance from dead works mean. You need to understand uh, faith towards God. What does that mean? We need to understand. We want to have discussions about this, conversations about this, about what is instruction on baptisms, plural. What about laying on of hands? Like this is from, like before we're talking about end times and bridal identity and all these extra, which I love all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. Um, prophetic revelation and identity and like all these catchphrases that have become so popular in our current swirls. But when you talk about these fundamental things, there's such a lack of clarity. And I feel the Lord going, just shut it down. Stop. Stop. Go back. Like Jesus said, repent. Go back. Do these things you did at first. Remember. Remember. Read, the, read what these apostles wrote. Go to the place where there was power on the gospel. How did those guys talk about God? Paul wasn't, didn't, I mean, 
We, it's like I love when you say, some people say we shout what's whispered in the Bible and we whisper what's sh- shouted in the Bible. And the zeal of the Lord is like, go back to these men and women of old who moved in power and listen how they talk about God, how they talk about sin, how they talk about eternal judgment, how they talk about the resurrection of the dead. I mean, I could go, I'm just being honest, I could say, hey, tell me about the resurrection of the dead. You know, And to me, it's like, well, do you know we're all going to be resurrected from the dead on that last day? Take on new bodies, live in an eternal city forever? Like, this is the apostolic perspective. This is how those guys were motivated. Those women were motivated. They didn't shrink back from death. In Hebrews 11, it says, they refused to be released from torture because they wanted a better resurrection. This thing was so deep in the hearts of the early church that they refused to be released from torture because they knew that those who were beheaded for their testimony would rise first. And they would rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years in new resurrected bodies. So they said, take me. And I'm like, we can't even, we can't even, you know, we can't even brace somebody out there not thinking we're cool. I mean, my God, how are we ever going to preach the gospel? We can't bear the thought of a family member disowning us. And I know I'm like zealous right now, but I just feel so strongly. It's not even about in this room. There's just a war being fought for the gospel. So it's important that we give, so we're going into the normal, the normal Christian birth. And there's a great book by a man named David Pawson. He's my favorite Bible teacher. Jenny and Jackson really love him. He's a British guy. DavidPawson.org. Got tons of free resources. He's British and he sounds like a Lord of the Rings guy. And so it's fun to listen to. But he wrote a book called The Normal Christian Birth. So a lot of this stuff is taken out of that. And I highly recommend it. It's one of the clearest, concise teachings, exhortations on this basic stuff of the faith I've ever, I've ever read. So it's important that we give new believers a proper start in the Christian faith. Much of the problems that Christians face today, emotionally, spiritually, can be traced back to an improper or incomplete start in the Christian faith. So we're going to break down four components of being born of spirit, being born again. It's just like a car. If you've got four cylinders and only two are firing, your car's going to run terribly. You're going to cut complications. The longevity of the vehicle is not going to last. We've got to have all four pistons firing in order to live a healthy we're called to be overcomers we're called to move in victory we're called to set captives free we're called to experience such an abundant life that the enemy's trying to kill us because we're so vibrant and even when he does it doesn't even affect us because we're so filled with life but part of it is we're crippled because we've been misled we've been mistaught we grew up in niche niche teachings And so different aspects of the body of Christ, as we get into this, you'll see, emphasize different ones. So each believer needs to experience and understand the four basic components of the Christian faith. And so as we preach the gospel, as we go and do this at the end of the month, and as we continually do it, I want us all to be talking about this stuff, discussing it, because it's going to feel awkward at first, but we need to ask these kind of questions to people. They'll say, well, I already believe in Jesus. Okay? So repentance, number one. Number two, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, baptism in water. And number four, receiving the Holy Spirit. So these are the four pistons that got a fire. Okay? All four of these components are anticipated in the Gospels, assumed in the epistles in the book of Revelation, and articulated in the book of Acts. How many of you know we can't look at the Gospels to see how a disciple is supposed to act? Jesus hadn't sacrificed himself yet. He hadn't poured out his spirit. It's, it was anticipated, right? 
And in the epistles, we don't really see the day-to-day acts of the apostles and the disciples because they're more letters, exhortations. It's in the book of Acts that we actually see what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. It's the only place in Scripture where we can see a clear picture of that lifestyle. So all four of these components. Conversion is mainly what we do. We turn around. We repent and believe. That's what we do. Stanley E. Jones, one of my favorite missionaries, Methodist missionary, wrote a book called Conversion. It's this big. And that book will rock your world. And in it, it's just story after story after story of grown men getting converted, how their whole family shifted, the whole culture of their heart shifted. It provokes me so much to share the gospel and to be bold because I care more about the other side of someone's life than I do about offending them and then not thinking I'm a cool, hip, urban Christian minister. Like, I want to see the other side of the story, the redemption in families, the torment that gets taken away. I mean, these stories are powerful. So conversion, it's calling people to repent, turn, believe. Then there's regeneration. This is mainly what God does. Baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit. So it's both. We need both conversion and regeneration to be alive in the kingdom of God. So we're going to go through the four components, and then we'll, we'll end. Okay? So let's just stay with me. So this is, and again, I want you guys to talk about this, provoke one another in these things. Let's discuss it. I mean, how, do, how would you lead someone in repentance? How do you, how do you exhort a born-again believer to repent? Because Jesus did that. How do you exhort someone who's never come to Christ to repent? And I'm telling you right now, and I'll get to it, there's so much traffic in the spirit realm over the issue of repentance, of what that really means. It's one of the most contested realities right now in the spirit. I can feel it. There's such an intimidation on the repentance issue because the enemy knows that it's what liberates men. So in, in Mark 1, 14 through 15, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. Here's the good news. Here's the great news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near you. They're seeing the miracles. They're seeing, and he says what? Repent and believe. Right? Acts 2, 37 through 38. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? I mean, I, love, I can't wait for the days where multitudes are saying that to the body. They're cut to the heart. And they go, what are we supposed to do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The call is clear. Repent. And it's not a mind psych. Like, there's this whole Greek... I'll I'll get into that in a minute. So, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... This is Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent. What is God declaring right now? Should what? He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul's emphatic. He didn't hide it. Here's the bottom truth. Bottom line truth. All men must repent. For there is a coming day of judgment. He's appointed a man that's going to do it. It's real. And it's going to happen in a blink of an eye. Before you know it, you're going to be there. And the greatest thing I can do, the greatest act of love I can do is to tell you the truth and call you into repentance. Repentance was a powerful, loving thing, but there was a confrontation. We, we're so worried about, well, do it in love. Make sure you do it in love. Amen. Do it in love. But you know what? Don't get so much in love that you're afraid to actually do it because that's not love either. 
That's self-love. I don't want to deal with the conflict, so I'm just going to just love you into the kingdom. That's not the apostolic gospel. No apostle talked like that. No man or woman of God throughout history who led multitudes, who impacted cities, talked that way about the gospel. So, repentance is the first step to enter the kingdom of God. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Repentance takes time. It cannot be general. Repentance happens in three stages. I just want to highlight that. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Sometimes in prophetic ministry, we alleviate people from sorrow. We tell them how much God loves them, and we try and give them prophetic words, and we try and make them feel better about themselves and remove the sorrow and the anxiety. And the Father's going, why do you keep doing that? Stop. They, this sorrow was actually sent by me to produce a humility and a bowing of the knee before God. And we try and convince people out of sorrow with a false sentiment, with a pat on the back. And a lot of it can be financial. Financial is one of the main ways that God brings people to humility. We keep rescuing people. God never becomes their provider. They never have to humble themselves. They never have to bow their knee. And they live in a dream world where they don't have to come into repentance to get into the blessing of God. To get into the favor of God. To come underneath the authority, the provision of a heavenly father. We bypass that's the fear that I feel. I feel like we're, by, we're, we're alleviating people from a godly sorrow that's actually meant to produce repentance and transformation and an abundant life in people. We got to stop. We got to tell people. I mean, I was reading Charles Finney the other day. I was so fired up. And I thought, man, this guy, 500,000 converts in two weeks in New York City, 80% conversion rate, meaning 80% of the people converted under his ministry were lifelong Christians, 60,000 in a week, no sound equipment. Now, and I read how this guy talks about God and repentance and sin, and it so provoked me. And he's saying one of the biggest issues, I'm just, this is just, and I'm, I can tell a little of my testimony. I grew up in the church, and I, I can say this is true of me. He said one of the biggest hindrances to repentance is Christian parents who remove the burden from their children and don't tell them the truth. So he comes into an environment that's trying to deliberate and tell people the truth so they'll come into repentance and he says, some people, they have more compassion for their children than honor for God. Finney was not the most <laughs> liked minister. I mean, to hear someone talk like that. But I'm going to tell you, that was my story. I, in many ways, I grew up in, this, in a church, in a, and I didn't understand repentance. I knew, like, I grew up in a charismatic church, so I kind of vaguely understood Spirit, Holy Spirit and grace. And I know God loves me, but I'm like, I still... It's so hard. It wasn't until I myself began to read this apostolic gospel and take it serious. I'm going, whoa. Okay. I've got to lose my life. This requires everything. It's not just about feeling guilty all the time and like pat myself on the back. God loves me. Like there's a radical call to stop sin. And to get, and I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, I thought I already was. You know, it's like, hey, I've been around it my whole life and I felt feelings and had emotions and had moments, but it wasn't the power of God hitting me like a bolt of lightning after I had repented and I got baptized as an infant. Infant baptism, Lutheran church. Man, I'm already baptized. And so, uh, so repentance, it's thought. We think God's way. We come to understand God's holiness the more we realize our need for repentance. It's in word. Words of repentance. We confess our sins. This is important because as we walk people through the, all these things, this is repentance. First, we've got to align our thoughts. And that's where the current movement of repentance is deceptive because it only emphasizes the thoughts. It's, 
It's this mind psych, like psych yourself out, and it's a changing the way you see yourself. Or it's like all of, it's this Greek concept of of thoughts in, in the ethereal realm. It's not Hebrew. Hebrew is very earthy. Like, yeah, think thoughts of repentance, then speak words of repentance. We confess our sins out loud. We confess our sins to one another. We name them specifically. We renounce them. We allow ourselves to be accountable to the covenant community of believers for that sin issue that we're struggling with. And this is something that's ongoing. I mean, me personally, I've struggled with um, overeating in the last five years. And so my issue isn't alcohol or, or, you know, too much. My issue's been overindulging in food and not caring for my body as I should. And that's a sin. That's real. That's not a cool part of my life, my heart, that, like, I'm real proud about. But I'm growing. I'm getting better. And in that, there's real pain in my life. Like, it's always, it's like, it's always, like, you know, I'm dealing with sorrow. And that's, it's like, you know, sorrow hits you sometimes. You're like, man, how do I cope? And food. So God's sensitive to all that. We have a compassionate high priest. Like, it's not like this harsh, stop now, or you're an idiot. But we have to stop. We have to bring it into the light. And we have to begin a process of accountability pulling us forward. And we have to be, I have to be better next year than I am right now. And if I'm not, hold me accountable. Because I'm not producing fruit and keeping with repentance. I'm not, something isn't active in the Holy Spirit of my life if I'm not increasing and getting. And my struggle 10 years ago can't be my struggle still. It just can't. And so... Then it's deeds of repentance. We prove our repentance by our deeds. This is the other part that's lost. It's the heart. God looks at the heart. Amen. He also looks at what we do. And we'll be judged and evaluated based on what we do. It says, it says in the book of Revelations, each one was judged according to the works done in the flesh, good and bad. On that final day, it's not, hey, man, I saw that stuff you did, but I knew your heart was good the whole time. Come on in. Bam. It's... I hear you, he's going to say to you, hey, Stephen, I hear you talking, but I'm looking at your life. At what point did your words or didn't they affect your life? You know, it's like we think like, oh, I want to be in the, I'm in the word and I'm living this Christian life. I think sometimes the Lord looks and he kind of looks at our Netflix account and he's going, man, I don't know if you really mean it yet. You'll saturate yourself for eight hours in a binge episode on Netflix but the idea of being in the word all day is so repulsive. You can't handle that. And I think we, like, there's a place of sobriety where the Lord's trying to bring us to. Of like, hey, I see your life. I'm not trying to make you feel less than, but I'm trying to bring you into wholeness and maturity and fruitfulness. So it's deeds of repentance. So I said, in my opinion, the biblical doctrine of repentance is under great attack today. And here, I'm just going to give you one little thread of that. Here's just a basic way that that's really being hijacked. So let's take this verse, Revelations 13, 8. In the NIV, it says it like this. All whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Okay? So, and it's very, that's the only place that really mentions it like that in the whole Bible. And so there's a camp that'll say, the Lamb was slain before the foundation, even before we were born, even before creation, the Lamb was slain. Now, there's a place where we can say that that's healthy, that's like, man, this plan was in the heart of God from eternity past. He loved us back then. This was always in the heart. There's a place of real comfort we can find in that. And then there's a place where people go where they say propitiation for sin was actually made before humans were ever created. And that's, where the, that's the, the thread verse for universalism. It'll say everybody's already saved. Repentance is just waking up to the truth that we've already been saved. 
But the problem is, number one, that's the only verse in the Bible that really emphasizes it like that. And when you compare it to the rest of apostolic doctrine and teaching on repentance, it's absolutely evident that's not the gospel and that's not repentance. Furthermore, you read a lot of the other translations, just even this NLT one, it says this. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made. The book that belongs to the lamb that was slain. So there's all these that word it differently. And it's not saying the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. It's saying the book that was written about the lamb. That w- the book that was written in, before the world was created about the lamb that was to be slain. So all you got to do is read a couple different translations of that verse. And it, and it knocks that thing out of the water. But I'm going to be honest with you. Like there's a guy named John Crowder. And I like a lot of the things he says. I mean, he's funny. He's smart. He's intelligent. I watch his videos and get a good kick out of it and think, man, he's right. He's making fun of me. I, I, I like being made fun of. This is my love language. So, so anyway, but I'm watching, one time I'm watching one of his videos, and, this, and, and, and he, there's about a missions team that he took to Thailand, and these kind of these young adults, and they're kind of like, dude, bro, and, you know, and they're kind of like, man, they're sharing testimonies. They're like, yeah, I went to this man child, and I just shared the gospel, and I just told him, Christ is already in you. You just got to change your thinking. Like, just accept that Christ is already in you. And I'm like, whoa. How did we land there from this gospel of repentance, turning to Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit, being baptized, turning from sin to this Greek repentance concept that's taking over, in many cases, the church, especially young adults. I'm telling you, this stuff is already so strong and lodged in the body of Christ. To begin to live in apostolic Christianity will be extremely offensive to this generation. I'm just telling all of you that are like young and old. Get ready for young people to not think you're cool if you're going to live the real Christianity. Like, if you want them to think you're cool, preach that gospel. No requirement to change. No expectation. Just like, man, you guys got to change the way you're thinking. Repentance means metanoia. And, you know, there's all these, like, Greek. It's like you take one scripture and you launch off it into this world of Greek oblivion where you're making up all this ethereal spirituality. And you don't even, it's like you've completely removed it from the rest of the context of scripture. And so... The next one is faith in the Lord Jesus. And I'll just, you guys can read through that one. I'll skip through that one. That one's probably the most widely accepted. But I would, do want to say this. Faith is historical. It's an event that actually happened. We're putting our trust in a physical, historical event that actually happened. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It's personal. It's faith in Jesus. Not faith that Jesus. Meaning it's faith in a person. It's a trust in an actual person. Faith is verbal. It needs to be expressed in words. We talk to Jesus. We talk about Jesus. That's a sign of our faith. Faith is practical. It's something we do, not just think, feel, and say. We know that. Faith without actions is dead. And I love this. When did you last believe in Jesus? Meaning, when did you last have to actually take a risk that caused you to tremble a little bit? That's what faith, it's believing in a person in the moment today. Faith today saves me today. Our secure life is a barrier to us acting and living in faith. It's like sometimes we haven't really had faith in Jesus in 20 years because we don't have to. Faith is continual, not a moment of faith, but a lifetime of faith. When you look at that word trust or faith, the translation is you go on trusting. It's not just I put my trust in Jesus 20 years ago and I've been, it's I'm tr- I have to trust Jesus today more than I did. It's a continual, it's the word of trusting. Even um, believe is go on believing. That's the, tra- that's the translation of that verb. It's a continual process. Like Timothy says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. It's not, man, I told the Lord I love him and I'll follow him 30 years ago. And I'm in it. 
I mean, he's saying, like, it's been a cont- I've persevered in my doctrine. I've kept this faith. All right, the next one's baptism in water. Baptism brings what you've already in repentance and faith to a climax. There was no such thing as an unbaptized believer in the early church. Impossible. People were baptized the day they came into faith and had a proof of repentance, which sometimes was the infilling of the Spirit. And so if any of these things, if you're hearing this, you're like, man, I haven't been baptized. I haven't really repented. I haven't really put my faith in Jesus in a real way. I haven't really received the Holy Spirit. Come and see me. And just in the context of what we're doing, it's okay. To, to not really know. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I had to get rebaptized when I was 21, and I got baptized again in the Jordan River last year because I got baptized as an infant. And part of my struggle in Christianity, I didn't understand that the old man died. I thought for so many, I'm trying to repair my old man, inner healing, this and that. Oh, my God, demons and roots and everything else. When if I would have really just understood that the whole package is dead. Like a little Chris Valentin says in the book of Romans, he says, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, 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 dead. God's not trying to repair your old man. He killed you. And the sooner you realize that, and he says in Romans, reckon yourself as dead, meaning you've got to acknowledge that and come to the place where you go, you know what? I'm not trying to be all I can be anymore, fix my old life, and man, I could have really been something. That dude died. The worst of them, see, we're okay when the worst of them died. Like, okay, that part of my nature that was weak, if it was greedy or lust or... I'm cool about that guy, damn. I want to keep this guy alive that's intelligent, articulate, and smart, and, you know, and charming. Like, we're kind of like half dead, half alive, and then we're struggling in their faith, and we don't realize, like, you got to let the good parts die, too. All of it. Dead. The life I now live in faith. In the new man. Satan has nothing in him. And that's a lot of times when deliverance happens. You get baptized, that old man's dead. Well, guess what? Satan has no more ground on you. He has to let you go. It's over. It's done. But I struggled for so much because I didn't understand baptism. And once I finally did, I'm like, you little rascal. (laughs) This whole time I've been trying to figure this out. So, baptism. So, baptize, it means drench, dip, dunk, deluge, soak, sink, swamp, saturate. Draw your own conclusions. I was sprinkled, Right? So baptism has two meanings, a bath for those who are dirty and a burial for those who are dead. It's a funeral ceremony. It really is. We have to, I mean, I'm telling you, we get this one revelation right in the body of Christ that we reckon ourselves as dead. Dead men walking. We're still trying to find our destiny and make the most out of the hand we've been dealt. We've got to let all that die and let the new man in us. And because here's the thing, even he's better than our, the best of our best parts of us. And he has none of the bad parts. It's a pretty good deal. Like we still get to be awesome because he's awesome. I love the concept like we all have an alpha male on the inside of us. Think about that. Every single one of us has the alpha. We are all capable of anything because of Christ in us. And that just gets me happy because the competition, we don't, we just got to put our faith in this man who lives inside of us. He's a Hebrew prophet. He's very smart. He's very loving, very kind. He's powerful. He actually tells people to repent. So be ready when he starts talking like that. Like, wait a second, where's that coming from? (laughs) So why was it done? Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and baptized will be saved. Right? John 3, 5, you must be born of water and spirit. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance and baptism were always tied together when the gospel was preached. 
Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away. Baptism, this is the most radical one, 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism now saves you. Ah! What does that even mean? I thought Jesus saved me. I thought faith saved me. Salvation is through faith. And that's what it's like. Yeah, it's true. All that's, that's like we've got to take this apostolic council. Here's Peter exhorting them, listen, you need to get baptized. He's saying it's more than just washing your body. Because part of what we embrace is a Greek concept of spirituality that separates physical from the spiritual. And so we've spiritualized everything. Everything's symbolic. But to the Hebrew mindset, they were one. So baptism was a physical act where spiritual reality was happening at the same time. Same thing with the laying on of hands. We're almost finished and we're going to pray. So receive the Holy Spirit. Western education is based on Greek philosophy, not Hebrew thinking. Physical events can have a spiritual effect in the Hebrew mindset. See, the Greek mindset comes from Plato, which is this is a concept. Everything of the earth is wicked and bad and corrupt. My body every, and everything that's good is up there in the heavenlies. And so there's this dichotomy. So we're made to feel guilty and unsure about our bodies, about our, the physical earth. And we're always trying to have this transcendent away from earth, away from reality. And the Hebrew is like, no. Like the Jews have a prayer while you're going number two. Because it's like to them that's just as spiritual as, you know, prayer. The body, it's this combination. So, um, for example, eating from the fruit from the tree of knowledge, taking bread and wine in communion, water and baptism. In the New Testament, it was normal to receive the Holy Spirit through a physical act, the laying on of hands by anyone. Every Christian needs two baptisms in water and spirit. Water baptism deals with the past. It leaves you clean and empty. Therefore, you need a filling with the Holy Spirit for the future. Receiving the Holy Spirit is a definite experience. If you can't put your finger on the moment you were baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit, I challenge you to contend for a moment that you know that you know you've been touched and filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe every believer should be able to clearly say that moment. And it doesn't have to be super dramatic. And, you know, mine was pretty dramatic, I'll be honest with you. But I'll tell you what, no one was laying hands on me. But I got knocked off a chair, literally. And I'm not a sensationalist. I don't, you know, it's like it knocked me off a chair physically. So I can tell you, that's when that happened. That's that moment. So press in that. Come see me. And we can contend for that together. Um, receiving the Holy Spirit is definitely experience. When Jesus was on earth, you could receive him. After his ascension, no one was told to receive Jesus. Jesus was replaced on earth with the Holy Spirit, so we must receive the Spirit. Right? Receiving the Spirit is the basis of our assurance of salvation. Ephesians 1, 13-14. Outward evidence always accompanies filling with the Spirit. If we are filled, then we will overflow. That could be tongues, spontaneous praise. I remember David Pawson, when he's teaching this, he said one guy he just went, Abba. And that was enough. Like, it's some kind of overflow. It could be gentle, could be loud, could be tongues, could be praise. Um, and so the reason why this stuff is important, and we're going to pray, is because I believe we're moving into reaping a harvest all around the nations. And the Lord's waiting on us to embrace biblical Christianity again, the Great Commission. And in Charismania, we've gotten so fixated on revival meetings. And are you an apostle? Are you a prophet? Are you this? Are you that? Above all that is, are you a disciple of Jesus? Do you take serious? Imagine this. Jesus rises from the dead. Says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, 
you're never going to hear a more authoritative statement in your life than what Jesus is about to say to these disciples. Here's the man. He says, go out into the world preaching the gospel, teaching them to not be so religious, bro. No. Teaching them to just love people. No. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. But we take his word so lightly. Like if one of our bosses were to give us a direct command and we were to just do it and go, ah, I hear you, but I've got a different idea about how to lead people to a happy place in life. I mean, we'd be fired on the spot. We give more honor and credit and value to our spouses and our bosses and our friends than we do the authoritative statements of Christ clearly spelled out in Scripture. There's so many people going trying to get prophetic dreams. What am I supposed to do with my life? And I'm like, well, are you preaching the gospel? Are you making disciples? Let's start, about, let's start with obeying the clear, direct commands of Jesus. And then maybe when we've been doing that for a while, we can worry about some prophetic direction. So I want to exhort us to just have this conversation. And let me just say, I love prophetic direction. I love prophetic dreams. I had like six last night. I'm just being honest. And they were profound dreams of wisdom, of how to navigate in different relationships. And I'm like, man, I need that because I'm an idiot sometimes, a lot of times, when it comes to relationships. I'm like, Lord, you got to help me. Why do I, what's going on? So we need prophetic guidance. I don't want to downplay that. I don't want to get into a place of like hardcore gospel and there's no oil and there's no prophetic, there's no healing. There's, no, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in charismania, in the charismatic movement, let's reclaim this truth because the streams are coming together. I got, my bo- I got my boy Bo back there. He's been in the Baptist church three years. He's feeling it. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've been praying. I've been praying. He's sitting underneath that good doctrine of clear call to repentance and salvation. But I know he's back there going, I need the oil. Where's the oil? You know, it's like, and so the Lord's taking these streams and he's bringing them together. And there's uh, traditionally charismatics. We're like, we think we're the elite ones. We're like, oh, all the religious people, we're going to confront them with the reality of the spirit. Well, guess what? The tide's turning. Many charismatics are about to get confronted with the reality of repentance, baptism, and the Great Commission. We have to embrace it. There's not a different gospel. We don't get like a niche reality. We're like, no, I'm just into the whatever our thing is. So let's join together. Let's pray. Let's contend that as these streams come together, as we begin to embrace the apostolic gospel, we begin to preach this gospel. I want to commission all of us. I just feel right now the Holy Spirit's present. Some of them say, oh, I've never really been commissioned. Should I, you know, I, I'm waiting for a, a supernatural experience. Let me tell you, something supernatural has happened. A grown man was dead in a grave. And he defeated hell. something really amazing's happened. And this grown man came out of the grave and he had a command for us. He's got an awesome prophetic word. Like, he wants to tell us our destiny. I mean, like, this man, like this dead man now alive, filled with light and glory and vibrating with the life of God, has got a word for you. And he's saying, go. Preach the gospel, please. Please. Please, don't just feel feelings for people. Tell them the truth, please. And when they come into repentance, teach them, please, to obey. Teach them to obey. Be a disciple. Obey me. Obey me. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, Lord, I'm asking for a commissioning from heaven. Lord, not that we need a new one. 
Lord, it's already happened, so we step into that through faith, Lord. And God, I just commission each one in this room right now, Lord, I ask that you would break off paradigms, false thinking, false ideas, Lord, there's so much wandering, like, what am I supposed to do with my life? What am, what's my niche? Lord, there's no niches. Destroy niches. We don't get a, an escape route from the labor of the gospel. Lord, raise up apostles again in our day. God, raise them up. Lord, and those that claim to be apostolic but are false, expose them. Expose them, Lord. Raise up a standard that's real in our day. Father, I just think that all of us are capable of infinite possibilities in you. No one in this room is exempt from glory. Everyone in this room is a candidate for the power of the gospel to manifest through us. Jesus, you're in us. The great apostle, the great prophet, the great priest, the great teacher. That anointing is resident on us. Lord, strengthen it. Strengthen that anointing in us. Strengthen us in our inner man by your spirit. Lord, break off. Break off the dullness. You know, I had this dream last night. What the Lord's been telling me, he's like, Steve, get ready for confrontation. There's going to be confrontation in the body of Christ. Even people you love, get ready, son. Don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. You tell the truth, son. And in this dream last night, I'm with this group of believers. And there's this woman that's clearly demonized. And she's being tormented. And they're just like walking around with her, like watching her. And there's no real power. And so I break into the circle. I go, what are you guys doing? Like, this woman needs to be delivered. So I walk over and I begin to take authority to deliver this woman. And, and these people were so offended at me. And one of them goes, we got the joy. You need the joy. And, and what rose up in me in the spirit... And I didn't even know what to say. The Holy Spirit rose up in me and he said, the difference between me and you is you need people to like you. I don't. <laughs> I didn't make that up. And I just felt the zeal of the Lord rising up in me and saying, son, it's, con it's conflict time. It's collision time. And so, Father, I asked that that reality Lord, would begin to weave its way into the body of Christ. Even in this place, I ask for Holy Spirit-led discussions. I ask for anointed conversations. Lord, I pray that what we prayed about, that apostolic community, Lord, that there would be breaking of bread in each other's homes. Lord, we just, we just, bind, we just smash the concept of distance. Lord, of cold love. One guy said the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Lord, we just repent where we've just been indifferent towards our brothers and sisters. Lord, we've just been indifferent towards the world. We say we love them, but we don't really. Not enough to tell them the truth. And so, Father, we ask that you would raise us up. And, Lord, we're looking. I'm just telling you right now, the Lord keeps whispering this to me. He's like, son, most of the leaders that are going to lead my victorious bride aren't even born again right now. They're waiting. They're out there waiting, son. Speak the gospel. Live the gospel. Preach the gospel. Don't shrink back. And the intimidation comes. He's saying, feel it. Feel the fear and do it anyways. Feel the rejection and keep doing it. Don't stop. Keep doing it. Tell the truth. Live it out. Repent. 
with the Spirit. Be reborn. There's a new future for every human. There's a new life. Even this past weekend, it's like the intimidation of the enemy. Oh, but the joy. I can just taste it. So, Father, I ask that you impregnate us with vision. Lord, what does it look like for that stadium to get filled? Lord, what does it look like? What does it look like, Lord? For like we saw in in the scriptures with Philip where shrieks are going out. Paralytics are getting healed and a whole city breaks out in joy. Lord, your word says greater things we're going to do. 